You're now listening to episode 92 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli back here again today with John Wilhoyt, a real estate professional specializing in residential asset and property management. Throughout his career, John has focused on high-volume, large-scale multifamily communities, including market rate and fixed finance developments. John has also authored two books on real estate analysis, How to Read a Rent Roll and The Rent Roll Triangle. In last week's episode, episode 91, we discussed how to read a rent roll, and that acts as a preface to today's episode where we discuss the rent roll triangle. Throughout our discussion, we discussed the three variables that are taken into account when making the rent roll triangle calculation, how the calculation can help you make decisions on how to cure deficiencies with your property to increase income and collections, as well as two case studies on how to apply the rent roll triangle calculation to a duplex and a multifamily workforce housing community. But that's not all. We also discussed the potential impact of the coronavirus on real estate investors and the tactics investors can use to mitigate economic vacancy when operating in this new environment. We hope everyone is at home and taking the necessary steps to stay safe as COVID-19 continues to impact the nation. The Real Estate CPA has created a Slack community for real estate investors to share ideas on how to protect their businesses and real estate investments, as well as stay up to date on all the various laws and best practices as the coronavirus crisis progresses. The community has already grown to over 500 members in the last few days, and some amazing discussions are already taking place. We invite all of our podcast listeners to join the community. The link will be in the show notes below, but you can also join by visiting www.cashflowcommunity.slack.com. Again, that's www.cashflowcommunity.slack.com. Again, the link will be in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you in the community. But for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. John, thanks for taking the time to come back on the show today. For everybody who's just tuning in, if you haven't already listened to last week's episode, episode 91 on how to read a rent roll, go check that out before listening to today's episode, as that's a preface to what we'll be covering today. And uh, I'm thinking today we could just kick off today's podcast with what the rent roll triangle is and why investors should be paying attention to it. All right. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I hope everyone that's listened to our first episode has that as a uh, primer for, to, to what we're going to be discussing today. So last week, we talked about uh, how to read a rent roll, the basis for doing income property analysis, utilizing the rent roll as your baseline document. And then uh, for me, as an author and as an operator, I probably should say that in reverse, as in a multifamily operator and author, I've devoted a lot of time to rent roll analysis. And from that, over years, doodling on the back of a napkin and uh, on an HP calculator, I came across what I thought was a calculation that could be utilized beyond just our baseline rent roll analysis. And that was to look at the interaction between gross potential rents, which is what the market says rents should be, stated lease rents, which is the rent on our actual lease that a resident signs, and then what we actually collect. And there's always a differential between those three. 
And rent roll triangle takes into consideration when you look at those three aspects of income, we're really looking at the elasticity of income or the strength of income for multifamily or income-producing property. What happens when we put all of those three into the same pot, stir it, and what can we learn from that? And the rent roll triangle is my take, my perspective on outcomes that we can derive from looking at how those three different pieces of income information interact with each other. And that is gross potential rents, state and lease income, and collected rents, what we actually collect. Got it. Got it. And I and I, I just read the rent roll triangle again this weekend in preparation for this. And I do understand that really the rent roll triangle, the calculation itself, the end calculation, it tells you the strength, but really what you're kind of looking at is the components of those calculations. That's kind of what tells you what actions to kind of take from it. So if there's a deficiency in any one of these variables, would you be able to kind of just walk us through what a deficiency in each one of these would mean? Sure. It gives you a starting point. It gives you that wow moment to say, oh, this is it, or this is it, or this is it. Because we don't know, right, until we look at all three. So let's start with gross potential rents. Everyone says, and I'm referring to market rate properties for the most part, everyone says we should be gaining or obtaining the maximum potential rent on every unit that we own. Yes, that's our goal, right? As owners of multifamily property or rental income, we always want to maximize rents. Well, as soon as you sign a lease for a term, you're stuck with that rent until that unit is available again, right? Or until that lease is up for renewal. So we already have a waiting period once we establish a rental uh, income level for that lease. Hopefully, we've obtained gross potential rent in that new lease, right? And uh, just as a caveat for a moment, everyone doesn't know this, rents don't always go up right? <laughs> That's kind of a presumption, you know, we, and, and I made that presumption in droves, particularly in the last economic downturn uh, that started, you know, was, we were hot and heavy in 2005, right? Prices were at a maximum, and then 2008, the world was different. So, rents do not always go up, but we still work in this industry as the, under the premise that, you know, rent, on, rent and expenses go up 3% per year. Well, of course, that's not true, right? But that's kind of the baseline that people use and unfortunately, they use it too often. So caveat to our audience, rents do not always go up. But uh, gross rent potential, the definition is maximum rent that the market is obtaining. Not what you want to get. It's what the market is telling you that you can obtain in a perfect world. So that's gross potential rents. Stated lease rents is, of course, very simple. It's the amount of rent that a resident has agreed to pay per the lease terms. So you as an owner of a property management company, and the resident has agreed to pay what's in the lease. So that's your stated lease rent. And then we have the wild card. And the wild card is, what do we actually collect? Because just because we have leases that say we're collecting $100,000 monthly, doesn't mean we're collecting $100,000 monthly, right? It's never the same. If that ever happens, that's the time that you should, you know, take a minute and go for a walk and come back and look again to make sure that it's true. Because in a multifamily property of any size, your collected rent will never equal exactly your stated lease rent. Now, of course, it could happen in a HUD property, right? Because that property is supported by a contract, a HAP contract that says you, the owner, will get thus and such rents from the government for so much. But even in that case, there's always a percentage of the rents that's collected directly from their tenant or resident. 
and not all tenants and residents pay that amount. So even in a HUD contract, 100% of collections uh, is very seldom going to occur. So you were talking about the fact that rents don't always go up, right? And you, you experienced that in 2008. Now, we are recording this podcast March 18th, 2020, right? So we're right in the middle of this coronavirus kind of really hitting the U.S. hard. Right. Thinking about rents don't always go up, how have you or how do you suggest pricing that in or modeling that into any sort of acquisition? Is it just a, let's keep a larger cash reserve than other operators might that don't have the same experience that they might keep? Or is it like you're pricing in more economic vacancy? How do you kind of like approach that? Yeah, this it's back to that term elasticity, right? There's a there's a rubber band that that's always occurring with respect to prices. You know, with this pandemic, we're going to see things. You know, in our lifetime, yours and mine, we've never seen such before. So we really don't know how what's going to happen next. Um, no one does, but in our industry. California, as an example, has suspended all evictions for the next 90 days, right? So that will have an effect on multifamily operators. And uh, let me use Houston as an example. Houston, year in and year out, builds more multifamily units than just about anywhere else in the United States. Um, As we know, construction will likely slow. And in a market that has a lot of units, those that are online and those that are coming online, back to what you were saying about economic rents, uh, a lot of operators just to get income to continue to come in, we'll start offering the same thing that we saw a decade ago. They'll start offering one and two free months rent in exchange for a resident signing a 12-month lease. So we already have that disparity, right? We see that coming. Even though it's not here yet, that's a trend that property owners will become more competitive. And when they do that, concessions increase. When concessions increase, rent goes down. So you'll still see from a book perspective, and I'm talking about accounting for a moment, yes, that lease is signed for 12 months uh, for a lease amount of X, but two months of that 12 months, there will be zero income. But from a banker's perspective, it looks like you have a 12-month lease, right? But a closer view, your lease just went down 14%. Your lease of your revenue just went down 14%. But we won't see that for six months or 12 months from now. So those that are competitive, those that are already struggling, will start to lower rents. Uh, larger operators will start, start offering more uh, concessions to make sure that they keep their units full. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm sure that uh, people are going to be experiencing some tough times and hopefully everybody makes it out. But uh, if some concessions are necessary, then it's, I guess, not the worst thing. It's better than nothing. It's better than collecting. It's, zero, it's, right? it's better to keep the revenue flowing to the best degree that you can and to keep your property competitive. Um, also, a lot of operators will start reducing the level of maintenance that they can accomplish, right? Which only makes sense today. But at the same time, you've got to have people on the ready. You've got to have that emergency team there to make sure that that leaking roof doesn't continue to leak. And or if there is water running in a unit, that that water is shut off. You know, I mean, I know that just sounds so basic. You know, if there's a gas leak, we react immediately, right? Well, water is no different. If there's a water leak of some sort, we should be reacting immediately. So even in these hard times, emergency maintenance must be in place. Got it. Got it. So if we were to turn back to the rent roll triangle and and look, I know you had put together some case studies in the book and we're going to go through one or two of those today. 
And maybe at the end, towards the end of the, of the conversation, we could look at you know how the rent roll triangle might be useful to analyzing properties in amongst this COVID pandemic. But so the rent roll triangle, uh, to summarize, has a lot of different case studies: office, multifamily, retail, amongst others, condos. But there's two of those case studies that are most relevant to our listeners here, and that's a duplex case study and a 48-unit workforce housing case study. And I was wondering if you'd just be able to walk us through the duplex case study and how the rent roll triangle would be applied to, say, someone who owns a duplex. Sure. Yeah, the case studies within the rent roll triangle tries to give people an array of options just to give you a starting point for uh, applying the rent roll triangle or RRT to your circumstance, to your property. And atypical duplex, they're not the same everywhere in the country, right? In college towns, particularly in the Midwest, in the South, a duplex will be two stories. It will have a two-car garage. We'll have three bedrooms, two baths, or larger, and it will maybe house as many as six or eight people. Well, that duplex doesn't exist in downtown Chicago, right? If it is a duplex, it's a brownstone, and it's probably an older brownstone that was at one time a single-family resident that's now been split up into two or three units. So again, when we say duplex, we're not really talking about a particular building. We're just talking about two units, two leases, and what can occur within those two leases. So in in the case study that's in the book, it's about an atypical upscale community where the residents have been there forever and the leases have been the same forever. And that is not uncommon, right? Most of the smaller properties in this country are owned by people over the age of 50, or over the age of 60, many of them own and manage their own property, which means they're not as diligent as a property management company would be. So please, folks, don't take that as offense. It's just the fact that most smaller properties are not run by professional property management companies, which means there's more likelihood for error in operations. And because those folks, right, including people like my parents, they don't do this full time, right? They have other things to do. They have other things in life that they want to do. And managing their property, whereas they are managers, they're not laser focused on that, as would be a full time professional. So that's why there's, it's highly likely that there's more disparities in a smaller property that's managed by the owner than a larger property that's managed by a professional crew right? There's always going to be those disparities. You and I probably can't dance anywhere near as good as those folks can on Dancing with the Stars, right? Because we don't dance every day, uh, which doesn't mean we can't, but they'll probably be pretty easy to tell the difference between myself and one of those young men that, that uh, do that for a profession. So in our case study, we're looking at a property that's in an upscale neighborhood that's been owned by the same owner for a long time, and the rents haven't really been increased for many years but the owners decided that they want to sell. So the owner goes out into the marketplace and kind of does a survey and says, and these are going to just be uh, what we'll call plucked from air numbers, okay? And concludes that, oh, duplexes in this part of town sell for $500,000. And that's the number that I want. So they go shopping for a broker. Um, they meet with several brokers and the person, the owner comes across a broker that says, all right, I'd really love to list your property. Let's go take a look at it. And the owner's already shared, we're going to sell this property for $500,000, right? That's what properties sell for in this neighborhood. And the broker comes back with the market analysis that says, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, uh, considering the property condition and the current rents, 
the most I could get for this would only be $400,000. And of course, the owner is shocked. Well, why is my property so different? And that's when Rent Roll Triangle comes in because now we can look and see for real why that property is only valued at $400,000 versus $500,000. And in the case study, the RRT calculation ending for this property is 62.85%, meaning the property is only garnering barely 62% of what the maximum income is. And we already know that's the reason for the change in, in value, right? So what is the number? And in our case, the number is using the, uh, the case study. The in-place rents are $1,100, haven't been changed for years, whereas the market rent today is $1,750. And a lot of people listening to this will say, well, that's absurd. That never happens. Why would anyone rent anything for $1,100 that could be rented for $1,750? Well, here's some reasons. One of them is, and the primary one, and this happens all the time, is nothing other than complacency. And that complacency is driven by a very good reason. And the complacency comes from the owner really not wanting to be bothered. Because life is good, right? The property's rented. Residents have been there for years. They don't call us. We don't call them. And the residents aren't going to call you because they know they've got a great deal. So if something breaks or something needs to be fixed, they're just not going to say anything about it because they don't want anybody coming around recognizing that, you know what, we could probably get more rents if we do this, this, and this in terms of repairs and remedies. So both parties live in bliss, right? The owner is great because they're getting their rent every month and nobody's calling them. And the resident is in bliss because they're paying less than market rents and nobody's coming to see them. So everybody's happy. So once we start looking at the property more closely, and in this case, we're seeing deferred maintenance because nothing's been done to the property for years. Uh, we see that rents are substantially below what they could be if the property were in better condition. And that's the reason for the change in market value or for that disparity. It's all about income. And in this case, it's depicted as basically being a third, right? The owners are only getting two-thirds of the maximum rent. Now, that's not to say if they went and did everything right, market rent would automatically go from 1100 to 1750 But it may well go to 1650 And yet, that still is a substantial change in the rental income for that property, and it would make a substantial change in the market value. Got it. So in this case, in this specific case, the rent roll triangle was able to tell you that it, the property is only operating at 62% around that level of efficiency. And the reason for that is because the gross potential rent is much higher than the current stated lease rent that they're actually collecting at this point in time. Right. Right. And, and maybe if, you know, to be more fair about it, and these case studies intentionally show large disparities, right? So that you can see what area you have to focus on, whether it's a uh, a differential from gross potential, or if collections are an issue versus you know stated lease rent. But in a real world example today, maybe that unit is rented for thirteen fifty versus nothing, uh, and rent is only sixteen fifty. So that would probably put this property to seventy five percent RRT, right, versus sixty something. But you can still see that's a twenty five percent gap. And once you know you have a gap, at least you as the owner are in a position to decide if you want to do something about it or not. And let me, let me step back for a moment before we proceed. Um, part of what the rent roll triangle represents 
is an opportunity to do this analysis before you buy a property. So it's all well and good for those that are owners to deploy the calculation to see where they are. But for new buyers in the marketplace or people acquiring multifamily property specifically, you can apply the calculation to the asset in front of your acquisition. And with that, even proceeding with the purchase, you know which area to attack uh, on day one, closing day. You don't have to wait and wonder because you can already put your business plan in motion or have it going in motion uh, from day one of ownership. So I guess it works on both angles. It works both for the owner to let the owner know what, what deficiencies are, are going on with their property. And also as the buyer, you can really come in automatically with a game plan, like you said, to, to, to correct those deficiencies if you're taking that on as the buyer. Right, right. That is excellent. And I know that there's a lot of people out there in that situation where you know they're buying a duplex that's significantly under-rented and quite common, especially when you have like that mom and pop owner who's not the professional property manager level. Yeah, and it's it's pretty common, but you know that's not to say that an owner operator can't operate their property more efficiently, right? So RRT is just one of those tools you can use to to put yourself in a position to operate your property more efficiently. Absolutely, and that was a helpful case study. I know there's going to go over one more that probably a lot of people in our audience are probably facing or probably in the space that uh, forty unit range where uh, they're in the workforce housing space at C, maybe that D-class property, would we be able to go through that case study as well? Sure. So the case study in the book goes through uh, what we're calling a 48-unit workforce housing development. So workforce housing just means it's bread and butter, right? They're all over the country, uh, 24 to 48 units, 48 to 64 units, up to 84 units where... Uh, in many instances, they're not quite large enough to support an on-site property manager, or that would be a significant burden to the property, the, you know, the cost of having on-site property management. So we already have a property that's just kind of existing, you know, kind of proceeding through its functional life. Uh, and at the same time, we don't have anybody on-site that's there to interact with residents in the property on a day-to-day basis. Doesn't mean there's not a property manager there daily but they're not on site daily. So it's not an institutional quality property by any sorts, um, but it also doesn't have those eyes on the property, you know, four, six, eight hours a day, every day. They're just people on property on an as needed basis. So it doesn't get the same level of attention, right, as a larger property would. And with that, if it's in the case study that we're using, it's in a working class neighborhood, the development is substantially functional, but has a lot of deferred maintenance. And the credit quality of the residents is pretty atypical, meaning you know, their credit scores are probably in the 500s, uh, low 600s. So they're not of the highest level of quality. And then median incomes in the case study are ranging between 60 and 120% of the average. So in Dallas, if median income is $50,000 for a household of four people, then in this particular development, people are making $30,000, $35,000 for that household. So they're not making, you know, the average, they're making substantially less than the average. So that all goes into what this property looks like before we go apply any rent roll analysis or RRT analysis to it, right? So our case study depicts that the property is running for 13% below market rents. And why would a property be renting for less than market rents when it's already a lower 
valued lower income property? Well, that's because the owner wants it to stay substantially full, right? So you less you lower your rents when you're trying to increase occupancy. When you do that, a lot of other things come with it. Very likely a lower quality resident, right? With a more spotty pay record and a property where you're not putting in the money to keep it at top shape because there's not enough money there to do so. So the property is being rented for a less than market rent. And in this case, we're suggesting that the property is only at 85% occupancy, even with those lower rents. And of course, with that comes collection issues. So we're saying that only 90% of the property is collected. So if you're looking at 48 units and they were all renting for $1,000 a month, we're only collecting 90% of that from our in-place leases. But guess what? Of those 48 units, 15% are already vacant. So you can see that there's gaps all over the place with this property, right? There's a gap in occupancy. There's a gap in tenant quality. There's a gap uh, from gross potential rent. So there's all of these gaps. So how do you know where to start? Well, the first place to start is we put them all into one place so we can review them. And that all in one place is the rent roll triangle calculation. We're looking at gross potential rents. We're looking at stated lease rents, which is the amount of rent that the lease says we should be collecting. And then we're looking at actual collections. And we're putting all three of those along with the average length of tenancy. That's the kind of the fourth leg of the triangle. And it's not in the triangle because it's not really attached to the property versus the other three income features. And with that, this particular property comes in right at 50%. Our RT value is 50% of what its maximum potential rent is. So how do we know what to attack, right? That's the question. Okay, we've done the calculation. What's next? And what the RRT tells us is that we have a gap between all three of the variables, right? So the question is, in this case, which one can we have? Which one can we, as the property manager or owner, have the most effect on? And that's the decision that you have to come to. Uh, you have to decide if you have limited resources and you have gaps everywhere, which one has the most value to you in terms of uh, getting the property to a higher RRT, getting it closer to gross potential rents. So we can't tell you the answer to that because we're not in your market, right? But by having this calculation, you're in a position to understand which parts are a variable or have a gap. And from there, because you know your property and your market, you should be able to determine which area you should focus on the most to increase rents. So back to the case study, it's a workforce housing property. It has 15% vacancy and also an issue with collections. And because there's likely deferred maintenance, um, there's not a lot of people looking to move into the property, right? So you really have to determine where you want to put your efforts. Uh, and in this case, I would submit that probably the highest value for your money would be to eliminate the deferred maintenance and along with that, be able to increase your occupancy. So you may not have much of an option in terms of raising rents or increasing rents in a neighborhood where there's 10 properties just like yours, right? That pretty much all operate under the same operating standard. But you can make your property stand out from just making sure the deferred maintenance is removed.
And a lot of that can be sweat equity, right? If you're a small owner, you can't hire everything out. You may have to learn a trade, but if that's the worst case scenario, hey, if you're stabilizing your asset and you're increasing the revenue and you have to work weekends to do it, that's what you have to do. You know, nobody wants me, least of all, wants to put a paint roller in my hand, but I've done it. And I won't tell you that the end result was very good, (laughs) but yet still it was better than it was. And I learned that tarps really have a reason for being in existence. (laughs) They save us (laughs) from making things that uh, could be worse to making them look just a little bit better than they would have otherwise. So that's a simplistic example, of course, right? But nothing helps a property better than just cleaning up the trash, making it neat, making things painted and making things square. And what I mean by that is making sure that all the windows have screens, you know, making sure that all the locks work, making sure that all the places that have a light that were there, you know, where there's a, a light that's not working, making sure that that light works. So those are all things that take time. They don't necessarily take money, but they can have a miraculous effect on even a small property. The lights are working. The lot is cleaned up. All the screens are in place. You know, and then you can start with other minor things such as caulking, such as power washing, such as painting doors. I'm not trying to be funny. These are all small things that just about any of us have the capability of doing that would make an exponential difference in our property. And we haven't spent a lot of money, but you got to give up something, right? And in these times that we're talking about, hey, the New York Mets are not going to be playing in the spring. It doesn't look that way, unfortunately. And our country is going to be going through a lot. So what do we do with this time that we have? Maybe you put some of that time into the properties that you own personally versus hiring a chain or claiming about the fact that we don't have the money to do it. And those differentials will make your property stand out as opposed to the neighboring properties where they're still trying to figure out how to do something because we don't have the money. If you have the time, you you have one of two things, right? You either have time or money. My dad used to say to me when I was in college, you're the only person I know that doesn't have any time or any money because <laughs> <laughs> I was always busy, right? How are you busy all the time? How do you never have any time to make money? Well, dad, I'm, you know, I'm in school and I've got this activity and that activity. You're the only person I know that doesn't have any time or any money. So things change. Uh, we're in a different place in time in the country at this point in our history. Maybe you've put a little bit more efforts personally, sweat equity into your property to differentiate it from those that you're competing against. Yeah. I, mean, I would imagine by doing that, by curing the deferred maintenance, as you've been talking about, would not only help maybe get the occupancy up, but perhaps, you know, COVID-19 aside, uh, would be able to get also maybe collections up as the units turn. You can maybe attract tenants, maybe of a slightly better quality that would be, maybe be able to help collections. Is that, is, would you see that being possible? Well, that's the reason that we're cleaning up the property, right? We want, we want a resident that's coming into our property that sees a pride of ownership. Mm-hmm. And that pride of ownership allows you to hopefully maybe have a little bit more tenant selection or more selection than you would have otherwise because you're offering a product that's a little bit better than competitive assets. So let me go off the rails here just a little bit, right? And talk about the difference between comparative assets versus competitive assets. When you walk or drive down a street and you see six buildings on either side of the street that at a glance look exactly the same, if you slow down a little bit and you're a potential resident, 
right? You're not an owner now. You're a potential resident. When you slow down a little bit and you see a for rent sign on all six buildings, well, which one are you going to go into? You're going to go into the one that presents the best. Mm -hmm. So what we're referring to in this small deferred sweat equity that maybe you wouldn't be doing otherwise, yours is the building that's going to see a bump on the positive side. Yours is the one that's going to have a little bit better retention. Yours is the one where the residents are going to want to stay versus moving on to the next place because they see that you're making an effort. Makes and, sense. You know, and in all of this, we're always looking at incremental differentials, right? 10%, 5%, 3%. Well, cash is going to be king. So getting those collector rents in the door are going to allow you to maintain ownership when maybe others cannot. Would you, you know, because we are in the in the midst of this of this virus, you know, uh, collections are almost certainly going to be down, especially with people losing their jobs and evictions being kind of banned, if you will. Um, right. Would you have any tips on what people could be doing? You know, uh, curing the deferred maintenance is, is is a good one, but if people, if their residents don't have the ability to pay because they're losing their jobs, would you have any tips at this point on how they can maintain some income coming in the door? It's or you know, the appropriate reserves to at least sustain themselves through uh, this period? Uh, as I just mentioned, cash is king, right? You don't want to spend any cash that you don't have to. Uh, it, that may well mean, in addition to you doing some uh, maintenance items yourself, that you hire your nephew and your niece to do some things also. And uh, you may have a janitorial service now. Um, I'm sorry to say, you, don't, you can't afford it. You have to do those things yourself if you can. So we're getting down to brass tacks, right? I mean, I went to college. I don't want to be doing janitorial work if I don't have to, right? That's why you go to college. But uh, in hard times, you make hard decisions. And there's certain things you have to do that you wouldn't do otherwise. So that's a simplistic example. One of the things you need to do in big cities and small is secure your vacant units and make sure that uh, there's not folks living there that shouldn't be there. You know, So securing vacant units is an important factor. Um, making sure that your residents understand that rent is due. If you can provide notices, uh, aside from what, you know, a lot of cities are not going to allow you to, to do evictions, but you still have to keep your paperwork in order and then figure out payment plans with your residents, those that can pay 50% of their rent today, accept the 50% payment. I know in normal times we wouldn't do that because, you know, you're now accepting rent, Right. And it's not for the full amount. So talk with your legal counsel about how to do that, if you should do that in your marketplace. Because again, normally we would say full rent or no, uh, we're going to do a three or five day notice, we're going to do a 10 day notice, and we're going to start the process, right, for eviction. Well, if that's not available to us, how do we collect a percentage or a portion of our rent? And just ask your legal counsel on how you can accomplish that and make sure that your books are in order. So that when we do come out from under this, you know what you are owed by each and every unit and then put into place a collection system for accomplishing those collections. And then we just hope that this doesn't last very long, right? We hope that this is a season and a short season, but today's date, we just don't know that. But the best thing you can do is keep your books in order, know what you're owed, do everything you can to diminish cash outlays and uh, do some of the work yourself or find service providers that will work for a lower amount or that will also defer their payments 
that uh, allows you to keep cash on hand. Uh, this this all makes sense for everybody who's listening out there. Um, now is not probably the time to just not to do your books at all. Um, I could see that happening. Some people have been telling us that they're focusing on other aspects of their business, which may be important, of course. However, if you don't keep the proper books and records, you're not going to, like John said, you're not going to be able to know who owes you what and how much you're owed from, from certain individuals. So definitely want to stay on top of that. But kind of while we're on on that topic of accounting, we this wouldn't be the real estate CPA podcast if we did not ask this question. We not talk about taxes. Um, you've been in asset management for a while. I'm sure you've worked with a lot of clients. Is there any tax strategies you see that you've applied, or perhaps other people, or you've seen people apply in their businesses? In our business, in the real estate business, it's a highly complex business, and the tax strategies are the same. They're highly complex. Right. And one of the reasons that I'm here with you on this podcast is because I believe in the work that you guys are doing. And I believe you offer a highly valuable service to our industry. So the best information, the best advice I can provide to owners of rental property or income producing property is to assure that you have good counsel, legal and accounting. It's just so important. I don't care if you do own and nothing other than a duplex. You're, unless you're a tax professional, you really don't have every tool at your disposal to make sure that you are accomplishing the accountancy side of that appropriately, which envelops, which takes into consideration locations of that asset. So my best advice is to have tax counsel the same as you would have legal counsel and not presume that you have to know everything yourself and not be arrogant enough, which takes some some doing for many of us, right? Not be arrogant enough to think that you know everything and think you can do everything yourself because that's why we have in this country a great level of segregation and skills, right? We have specialists and we have specialists that do not just taxes. We have specialists that do real estate taxes. And those are the ones that we need to utilize because they will know more in a minute than we would ever learn in a year because they're in the business full time. And the best example I can use is even for small owners, I share with them at every turn that I can, please hire professional property managers, even if it is eight units, even if you have the time, because unless and until you're in that business full time, you really don't have the skill set to address that property on a 24-7 basis, 52 weeks a year. And yes, you may think you're paying a premium for hiring property management, but you're really not. You're really securing that asset. You're making it more viable than it would be otherwise because you're applying professional expertise to the asset. And for your audience, they already know, uh, you guys are CPAs. Hey, we have a service here. And I'm suggesting for your listeners, there's nothing better for them to do for themselves and their families than to hire professional expertise for tax purposes also. Because you don't want this to unravel on you, right? You can have a beautiful asset that you've owned for 20 years. And because you didn't do the tax and accounting correctly at sale, things will happen that you were not aware of because you haven't had that counsel all along. So best to have it from the beginning and retain it. And frankly, it's a small level of insurance to assure that that asset works for you and your family from ownership all the way through disposition. Yeah. And I just wanted to uh, kind of jump in here. You know, you're exactly right. You need a really solid team that specializes in different things. 
so definitely tax legal business coaches like like get yourself surrounded by people that specialize in these various areas so that they can come to you and bring you a lot of that value but especially in times of like crisis like we're talking about right now I mean, our firm, what we're doing is we're kind of repositioning and saying, hey, let, let's help you with a daily rent roll collection report, right? So let, let's have it in your inbox at 8 a.m. when you wake up and you open your email, you see it in your inbox every single day starting April 1st. So you know exactly who's paid and who hasn't paid. Let's help you understand what your run rate is on a monthly basis and how long you have with that reserve account that you've built until you're toast, Right. Uh, like, like if you can work with somebody that can help you, even in times of a crisis like this, bring you transparent data that you can then use to make decisions off of, it's just, it's critically important, uh, especially, yeah. especially in today's environment. Yeah. And as Thomas was mentioning, you know, we're looking at, at today and tomorrow, right? But short-term planning today probably only takes you through June. So looking through the, the entirety of the next quarter is today's short-term planning. Uh, and that can start with daily you know, daily rent runs, right, to, to know where you are. But six months from now, the world will be different than it is today. And 12 months from now, it'll be even more different. So anything we can do starting early, starting immediately, to know what you were saying, how much, what your cash burn is, gives you an opportunity to, frankly, maybe even start sooner than any others in terms of negotiating with lenders, and vendors and assuring that you make it through the other side. And here's the thing. So I have a, uh, a coach that runs a very large company out on the West coast. And, you know, he advised me, it's like, look, all you have to do is survive. It's all you have to do. Figure out what you have to do to survive and just survive. If that means that the owner doesn't take a pay in any sort of pay over the next six months, then that's what it is. But starting Q3, Q4, there's going to be a ton of businesses. Now he's talking businesses, right? But it's going to be the same thing with operators, right? There's going to be just a ton of opportunities where people have botched it. And as long as you survived, as long as you haven't taken a massive hit Q3, Q4, there could be some pretty good opportunities to come in and really help somebody re either rebuild their business, you buy them out, whatever it is. Um, but all you have yeah. to do is survive. Yeah. And, and do it safely and securely. Don't put yourself at risk. I uh, think from a financial perspective that this is going to last four times longer than what anybody else is saying. And that'll put you in that perspective to know that uh, this is not a week or a month. This is going to be a much longer time time frame than that. Yeah. So this, is, this has been an excellent conversation today and want to wish everybody the best and stay safe during this COVID-19 uh, era. Uh, but would you be able to give our audience a little bit more information about where they can learn more about you and, and the books that you have written before we wrap up for today? Sure. Uh, JohnWellHoyt.com is where you can find me. Uh, I have a mini podcast as compared to this one, uh, and I haven't kept it up. I will add real information you can listen to today that will be true uh, today and five years from now. Uh, things related to homeownership, operations, and, and acquisitions. Uh, acquisitions may not be on anybody's mind today, but uh, they will be six months from now when those opportunities do present. There's also a contact page. If you want to reach out to me on that contact page, you can, but johnwellhoyt.com. And then my books are on Amazon. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on today and uh, having a discussion about the Rental Triangle and COVID-19. Uh, stay safe out there. We'll be looking forward to releasing this next week. 
If you haven't already heard, the IRS has moved both the individual tax filing deadline and the payment deadline to July 15th, 2020 to help combat the impact of the coronavirus and as many professional tax preparers and firms have been disrupted. Luckily, as a virtual CPA firm, the Real Estate CPA has been able to maintain operations with little disruptions. If your tax preparer has been affected and you're eager to have your tax returns prepared and filed to receive your refund, we may be able to help. Visit www.therealestatecpa.com slash become-client to fill out a brief web form and we'll discuss how we may be able to help you achieve that goal. Stay safe out there and thank you for listening to the Real Estate CPA podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.